Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I feel so strongly about the use of force against innocent people that I can sympathize with why you would say it's, we got to execute this guy for what he's done to this poor woman or this poor child. Welcome to the 35th episode of Varvet International. And as far as my name and so on, it's business as usual. I'm still Christopher Triumph from the block in Sweden. If you just look at following in social media, today's guest might be the most famous to date. Mr. Mark Pellegrino has nearly 330,000 followers on Twitter. And no wonder, he is a great actor with many great movies and TV shows on his resume. I mean... On TV, he was on The Returned, Lost, Supernatural and Dexter, for instance. And he's been in movies such as The Big Lebowski, Capote, Mulholland Drive and National Treasure. In short, he's had a fantastic career. However, we won't talk much about that at all. See, following him on Twitter, he is very much about politics. And even though I personally am very far, far to the left of him when it comes to politics, we had a great time and we will eventually get into his life as well. So, without further ado, let's roll the tape, please. Actually, my grandfather was full Swedish. Uh Aha, he was. Yeah, Lester Felting was his name. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I've got a lot of Swede in me. Yeah, all right, but I thought you were like 100% Italian. No, my dad is Italian, my mom, Swedish. All right, okay, cool. Is that important to you with the ancestry and so forth? I mean, no, not in that I I don't take any pride in that kind of thing, for sure. I I only take pride in things that I accomplish, but uh, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting thing to think about. Since I, I didn't really know my father, I feel like I have a a desire to know where my roots are. Okay. Even if the the idea of ethnicity means nothing to me, yeah. just knowing where I came from and knowing what my ancestry did is kind of fascinating to me. Tell me why you you never knew your father. You know, it's complicated. You know, I don't even know all the reasons around it. I've just started to connect with people from his side of the family. And, you know, they have their version of events. And my mom, before she passed away, had her version of events. And from my mom's point of view, they just were incompatible with each other, you know, and fought a lot. They were young. My mom was in her early 20s, 23 when she had me. And uh, they just didn't get along. And he had to go his way and she had to go hers. And then he got involved with another woman, married her, had a family with her. And when my mom 
I guess, started dating another man, and that man became a prominent feature of our life. My real father decided to, this according to him, take a you know a back seat. He thought he was causing more damage than than doing good by um, being in my life, so he decided to take a step back. Very odd conclusion for a father to come to, but that's the one he says. That's what he says. He uh, that's what he says. He thought. Is he still around? He no. He passed away about four years ago. Both your parents must have died fairly young. Then, yeah, right? my mom passed away when she was fifty-six. Why? Lung cancer. She stopped smoking when she was thirty. I got her to quit smoking, and she became pretty pretty healthy. Um, she uh, ran two miles every day. And ate basically well, and took care of herself. Looked fantastic, and uh, died anyway of lung cancer. Okay. And my my father, I actually was there at his deathbed when he passed away. He passed away in Las Vegas. He had prostate cancer that spread to his bladder and then kind of metastasized all over. But he was a smoker and a drinker all the way through his life. Okay. Well, you must have become motherless at what age? In, in my thirties, I think thirty-three. Okay. Ninety-eight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How was that? Disturbing. You, you know, my mom was the only family that I felt like I had. My grandfather was the only male figure in my life that I, I could really identify with, and he passed away when I was fifteen from okay. cancer as well. Uh huh. Right. And so uh, she was sort of an anchor for me and a and a friend, you know, and and a very supportive light in my life. And to have her go was really really devastating. Of course. Yeah. Well, okay, but you learn to cope with it, of course, uh, after a while. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you 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 adjust and you sort out ways to to deal with that information, I guess. And it was hard for a while for the first year. It's, it's 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 a death is such a, a crazy phenomenon because you can't you cannot adequately understand it in your conscious mind. So the absence of a person means they have to be somewhere. It's yeah. not that they're obliterated or gone, which they are in my view. I'm I don't have any religious uh, ideology. So for me, once you're gone, you're gone, and and that's a really that's nearly an impossible thing for the consciousness to grasp. I think since we're consciousness deals with what is and what exists, and not with non-existence. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, trying to wrap your head around uh, eternity or space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when people tell me that the universe is expanding, I'm like, well, into what? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's everything that is. So what it can it expand into? I don't... Yeah, those are very interesting uh, theories to wrap your head around. Yeah. Um, perhaps if I did acid, I would... Suddenly connect with whatever that means. Exactly. <laughs> But I wouldn't go that way anymore. Anyway. Uh, Ooh, so, you've been there before. <laughs> well, yes. I've been sober for 11 years now. Mm, congratulations. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a feat. Yes, you seem like a really healthy person, but can you deal with alcohol and so forth? Yeah, I have my issues from time to time with it. I've used it to medicate in the past, but um, I, I have control over it. I can decide when I do it and when not to do it, and and so I don't have the you know the horrible addiction that so many people do, where it's kind of beyond their will, I guess. So for me, it's. It's a pleasant diversion, and because I'm, uh, you know, more or less health conscious, I, I can only do it to a certain extent because I, I don't want to hurt myself, <laughs> so I'm not bent on, on destroying my mind or my body. 
as uh, as so many people who are uh, victims of that do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I could also decide whether to indulge in alcohol or not. But mm -hmm. once I did, once I took the first beer, it was out of my hands. Sure. So I'm, I guess I'm an alcoholic by mm -hmm. definition then. But uh, it's uh, sort of tricky for me to still, to this day, it's tricky to, to sort of admit that to myself. Sure. Well, well it, there's no shame in it, though, and and um, it's and you can admit it in public, like right now, which is absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's a fantastic step in my mind. I would assume that American young people in general, oftentimes, are. Would you say that it's more usual that people drink first, or do they take a joint first? Mm. Nowadays, I don't know. Since I think our culture is more and more accepting the idea of people smoking marijuana than they than they did in the past. So it might be neck and neck. And as far as availability, it's probably becoming more available since I think uh, there's a couple of states that have legalized it. And uh, <clears throat> California is about to, or? California has legalized the medicinal distribution of marijuana, but they're at odds with the federal government, of course. One of the things that I agree with, you know, people should be free to indulge if that's what they want to do it's their body and their lives and and as far as i'm concerned nobody should interfere with that so you know i think at one time in in my era it was probably beer first you know or some version of alcohol and then a step or two away you might experiment with something else now they're neck and neck i think yeah I was reading up on your tweets sort of yeah are you what what you would call a libertarian I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but that's the closest political party that I could identify with, but I wouldn't call myself that. I'm a, I'm a classical liberal, and no party exists that I actually identify with. And the libertarian, where I take issue with the libertarians is their inability to morally defend the free market, and in their sense, if you're a consistent libertarian, that government has absolutely no place in the lives of people. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think it does. It's just a specific function. It serves a specific function in, in a civilized society. And, um, and so I, I argue with my libertarian friends all the time about that, that kind of stuff. What do you think that the government should uh, focus on? Well, the government is force. And I think that force should only be used in a retaliatory capacity. I think that human beings, in order to be civilized, have to ban the use of force in interpersonal relationships, because force is the way you violate someone's rights. And rights are a freedom of movement, freedom of action. You think you, the evidence of your senses tells you that a course of action is so. Nobody should force you from taking that course of action, unless, of course, you harm another person. If you harm another person, then force is required in a retaliatory sense. If I think I want your apartment and I knock you on the head and take it away from you, I'm a criminal. And then the government steps in as a repository of objective law and due process, they, taking the emotional elements out of retribution for a crime and, and, and putting it totally in the realm of reason, and then punish that person according to a process, a logical, methodological process of proof, and then making that person pay in some way or another. So 
But in your in your dream society, when you knock me in the head to get this apartment, what would happen to you after the trial in your in the Pellegrino society? Well, I would imagine I would have to go to jail and pay retribution. I would. I, I think that my time in jail would be. I would probably be put to work paying you back for the damages that I caused you. That that would be my ideal world. Yeah. Okay, but but the fact that I mean we do put people in prison all over the world and at least in Sweden that's where criminals really learn how to be a criminal. Well, I think that the prison system operates according to a very different notion of the causes of crime and the solutions to crime than I do personally. First of all, I know in America, I don't know the exact figures, but 70-80% of the inmates in American prisons are are there for drug offenses, non-violent drug offenses. So, and in my world, transactions between two consenting adults are legal. Whether you agree with them morally or not, they're legal because, you know, it's the responsibility of the people in the midst of the transaction to deal with each other as they see fit. So, from my point of view, 80% of those people shouldn't be in prison. And for violent offenders, it shouldn't be a system that enables you to take steps up the social ladder. In other words, if crime isn't just a problem of character, antisocial behavior, but a societal issue, and society is to blame for it, and prison becomes a a type of therapy (laughs) that you kind of reintroduce yourself back into the community, which it isn't, the recidivism rate is so high, it's proven, in my view, that that way of looking at crime is incorrect, you basically do teach criminals to be better, more apt criminals in that they go into a system where they're moving up the social ladder, they're getting benefits and therapy that they manipulate. They don't have to pay back the person that they've stolen from. They're more or less moving up the economic ladder in a sense. They get three hots and a cot and they have no sense of what they're often, no sense of what their crime has done to the individual. And I think if we made it that, that it was punishment, for what you've done and that your object is to repay the person that you've harmed. And in the case of a life, if somebody's alive, there's no way they can repay that. In which case I have feelings about that as well. But um, if prison were a punishment, I think people would be less inclined to go there. I actually knew somebody who got out of prison because I box. So I go to boxing gyms and boxing gyms are kind of, you know, they're a little bit inner city, you know, people that populate the gyms have a tendency to have records. And this guy, Loved prison. He'd uh-huh. just gotten out of six years. He wanted to go back. He could get anything he wanted there. Loved it. And I don't think prison should be a place you love. I think it should be a place where you feel shame for what you've done to another human being. How about death penalty in the Pellegrino universe? <laughs> yeah, classical liberals have a tendency to be against the state, or at least libertarians don't like the idea of the state controlling anything. So the idea of the state having power over your life is particularly distressing to them. For my part, that's not necessarily a classical liberal tenant. A classical liberal tenant, from my point of view, and there are probably people that dispute me tons, but I think if you've if you've taken a life, that you've taken hope and dreams of a person. That person can't draw another breath. They have nothing, nothing. You've shattered their families, lives, their loved ones, who will never be the same from that time on. And so, in my opinion, the death penalty is appropriate for somebody who has taken a life, provided that case has gone through due process of law and an appeals process, not the absurd appeals process that we have today, where minutia is um, disputed on testimony, things that 
don't pass muster, but just keep the case in a continual state of appeal so that the person never meets the, the just end or, you know, after 25 years, finally get what they deserve, which is an end that that is far more just than the victims because that poor victim didn't get due process. They didn't get legal review. They didn't have supporters behind them trying to save their lives. They were just alone and victimized by somebody. So you you believe that a human life is sort of the most valuable thing on earth? Yes. Okay. I do. Yeah. I love human beings. All right. So, for instance, if there's a, what's it called? Like it's a sexual offender or yeah. a child abuser? Yeah. When that person comes out of prison now, they have to sort of knock on the door in the neighborhood and there's, they're going to be sort of stigmatized for the, for the rest of their lives, right? <laughs> Do you think that works? Yeah, I'm unclear. I've never seen any statistics as to whether that works or not, but I, I do know a little something, and maybe a little bit of knowledge is worse than <laughs> not knowing anything at all, but I don't think that child molesters are reformable. I think they're extremely dangerous and manipulative and will, if left to their own devices, find a way to get what they want. And rapists may have very, very similar unreformable character issues, Unless it's approached from a specific point of view, and, and I'm referencing a book that I read <laughs> that I, I think kind of changed my outlook about crime and about the mindset of criminals. It's called Inside the Criminal Mind by Dr. Stanton Samenow. He was one of the only doctors who worked within the prison system to actually reform criminals. But he did it by breaking all the myths of criminality that we know of, like poverty causes crime and there's such a thing as a crime of passion. All of these things are myths. When you break down the, the criminal personality, the criminal person has always been antisocial. There's never been a time where they've been integrated in the community. So there's no real such thing as rehabilitation because they've never been habilitated in the first place. Okay. From the time they were very young, whether they're rich criminals or poor criminals, they've had a very specific sociopathic kind of outlook on people and on how to get what they want. And the only way he was able to change many of them, more than therapy does, because he discovered that in therapy, the criminal just used the system. He just, he just milked it, abused it, and exploited it for what he wanted. But he discovered by getting them to be change their thoughts, literally, which was a rigorous program of writing down everything they thought, analyzing it, and literally re-inputting thoughts until that became habitual. That was the only way that he could affect a change on someone and perhaps for the rapist and i despise that kind of individual despise since i'm a huge advocate of women's rights all over the world i mean the idea of a of a man brutalizing a woman like that just uh, it drives me insane and a child molester if they were subjected to a program like that that changed their thoughts maybe then i would trust them in the community i don't know what's stigmatizing them if that It gives them enough awareness that other people are around them and shouldn't be their victims, that they stop doing what they're doing, or if it just goes underground. But I'd definitely love to know if it works. It's so hard for me to grasp how, when I see child molesters on TV, like being dramatized or so, I, I, it's, I mean, it's, uh, I can't understand it. I can't understand, because they, they always are portrayed really evil people. Whereas I would assume that 
all child molesters perhaps aren't evil. I'm not sure that people can be born evil or perhaps everybody are born evil. I'm not sure. Irrespective of what their experiences are, they're responsible for their behavior. You know, I don't yeah. care. I don't care what people think. You can think anything. Thinking is not a sin. But the second you take action on something that dark, you are evil to me. And I'm not, I don't care about your origins. I don't care about your story. That, I'll leave that to the psychiatrist to suss it out. And that'll be between you and him. What I care about is that you've harmed a child mm. and you need to be punished for it. Or you've harmed a woman. You've brutalized a woman and you need to be punished for it. Just like it may be very interesting for Alice Miller, you know, the great psychologist, to analyze dictators like Hitler and Shiseku and, and monsters like that. And I find it interesting to read what she writes about them, but frankly, they need to be stopped. And I don't care that he had a terrible relationship with a, over, a domineering mother and a, and a terrible father. I, I had, you know, issues in my life similar to that. And I haven't decided to demonize a, a population of human beings and, and murder millions of people for it. What did you just say? You had what kind of experiences? Well, my, my stepfather was, uh, had pretty serious problems. And, you know, I grew up with him from the time I was about three to 15 when my mom finally divorced him and he was an alcoholic and he was he wasn't a nice person to begin with i look i look back on it now and i think uh that he had ptsd because he was a he was a marine in world war ii and he had been through some of the worst battles in the pacific he was in midway and he was in guadalcanal and he was 19 years old at the time so he was He was a witness to things that no human being should be a witness to, and at an age when it was impossible for him to really deal with it. And I think he came back with that, and being a man of that time, never sought help for it, and and medicated by drinking alcohol and, and, and acting out. And he was a very mean, rageful drunk. Mean to my mother, mean to me. I don't think he liked me at all. And uh, that was my experience growing up coming home from school every day with a knot in the pit of my stomach, dreading that I would have to now go home and, and wondering what I was going to have to confront that day or that night, you know. Yeah. And it was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And, and he shackled me with that. You know, he gave me that PTSD and he gave me that kind of fear that is like at the deepest levels, you know, that, and uh, that was my inheritance from him. But I've chosen to go to therapy and to and to work it out and to understand myself and to differentiate between him and I and to know that I have worth separate from him and and to not act out in ways that are antisocial. So it's not that I don't have sympathy for somebody's story, but I have more sympathy for the person they've harmed. When you spoke about this, I'm not I'm going to try a, a thought with you now. That I myself might be appreciating a person's free will. I mean, if you abuse my free will, if you would, if you would uh, press me down to the floor, and uh, you don't even have to rape me, but if you would sort of violate my right to be a free person, I would say that that might be a worse crime than if you would kill me, because I don't know what's going to happen after death. Right. That might be a liberation. You might be doing me the best favor ever, and perhaps murdered people 
have a great time in the afterlife. You never know. I wish I believed in that afterlife thing. But you're, <laughs> yeah. you're right in the sense that a person who gets victimized like that now has to live with the scars of, of what that person's given them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Just like people like me who grew up in abusive households have to live with that and contend with that forever. And it changes you, for sure. I mean, there's probably a reason that the penalties for rape were so much stiffer in this country in the early part of the 20th century than they've become. I'm not necessarily uh, against that. I mean, it might have even been a death penalty offense at one time in this country. Maybe that's a little excessive, but I, I feel so strongly about the use of force against innocent people that I can sympathize with why you would say it's you know, we got to execute this guy for what he's done to this poor woman or this poor child. When you went to therapy, I guess that was that a long period of your life? I went to therapy from the time I was 16 into my 40s. Oh, okay, all right. So various kinds of therapy. And I've always sought teachers in my life. Since I never really had a father figure, I think I've, I gravitate towards mentors. And um, I've always been curious about people. And, and so I've satisfied that curiosity by reading a lot and connecting with people that I think know more than me. And, and these people challenge me. They challenge me. I haven't done that much therapy, but my assumption of it is that you get sort of tools to cope with stuff. Could you tell me, like, to become free of your stepfather or to sort of separate, perhaps he's going to haunt you in some ways for the rest of your life, but could you tell me about some of the tools you were given? I think one of the tools is to first off recognize it because I think what, what people do as a defense mechanism is they deny. They deny, deny, deny. They live in a state of denial. And that denial becomes a, a state of disowning where you disown parts of yourself that you find distasteful or parts of yourself that you don't, you don't want to be conscious of because they're too painful. So the first part of therapy, I think, is to become aware of it. And once you become aware of it, not to deny it. And that direct confrontation with your feelings, with your demons with your past, that acknowledgement for, of what it is for what it is, just in and of itself is extremely therapeutic. If you never went past that, you would be much freer than you were. Because I don't think you ever, I don't think you ever out, outgrow it. I think it's always there. And it's, even if it's just a, a, a tiny resonance, it's always there. It always informs you, sometimes at the worst times. But then the second Part of that, I think, is to then grieve. I think grieving is a very important part of the process because we want so badly to frame our childhood positively because these people were our universe. You know, this is, we associate our sense of life with our parents, I think. And, and to admit that not only were they not perfect, but they were horrible, that they didn't love you, to not be loved by, you know, your parent. And to acknowledge that is a terrible kind of awareness. But embracing it and allowing yourself to grieve over it is another step towards being healthy. And then after that, it's about, you know, separating yourself from them and, and understanding when the, the voices you're hearing in your head are your own and helpful and good for your life or the damaging surrogate parent voices in your head that, that you've learned to parent yourself in the in the kind of malignant way that your parents, you know, um, taught you. So you, you learn to um, 
you learn to separate that out and be a better parent to yourself, I think. You're an actor. You are politically informed. You seem to take care of yourself physically and so forth. Given the, the fact about your background, do you think you would have had the life you've had if it wasn't for the abuse and so forth? Hmm. I wonder, Possibly. you know, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, a good thing that we can, that we humans can put our terrible experiences into a kind of perspective that turns them around and makes them positive and productive for us. And I could say that if I didn't have these experiences, I wouldn't feel this way about people. I wouldn't feel so strongly about their right to be what they want to be. I wouldn't be sensitive in my work. I, w I wouldn't be open to or vulnerable to other people like, like I am now. And that, that could be true. And I think that's a very productive way of using, you know, really damaging, a really damaging past and using it in a way that works for you. I do think that, you know, to the extent that you're neurotic and neurotic because you've experienced really horrible things in your life, you're cut off a little bit. So there's also the part of me that feels like there's still, even at my age, parts of my being that are alien and foreign to me or that I'm unfamiliar with or afraid to touch because of what I experienced in my life. And the good thing about acting is that it kind of forces you to go there, you know, and acting can become, acting on certain projects can become very spiritually invigorating. They can actually, they can actually expand your growth and, and force you into areas that you wouldn't ordinarily go emotionally. And it can become kind of therapeutic. So I think, um, I wonder, I wonder if I would have become an actor otherwise. You were sort of, uh, casted often as a bad guy mm -hmm. and obviously you grew up with one does that have to do with each other i wonder I've, i've thought about that a little bit you know i've wondered if it's that that people's first impression of me has anything to do with something that my stepfather stamped on my face or on my soul that is like something that i can't get away from and so that people automatically feel a sense of unease around me just just because I give off something that I learned from an early age. And I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think the characters that I play are a little more complex in the sense that they're... I've noticed something in, in a number of them. They, even if they go about getting what they want in a way that's inappropriate or even bad, they are fighting for something noble. They're just out of their depth. Or even if it's a guy like Lucifer, I feel like guy like Lucifer, a being like Lucifer, I, I feel like in the mythology of that show, he was going for something justified. And it's, it's revenge, but I'm, I like revenge stories a little bit. Mm. <laughs> Dogville was one of my favorite movies, and that's, <laughs> that's a good revenge story. <laughs> There's something to be said for the self-esteem of somebody who is not going to take it anymore and decides to, you know, get what is due him. So, But you were sort of saying in passing that people <clears throat> might not recognize you as a good person. Uh, I mean, but do you mean yourself, you privately? Well, um, I mean, yeah, definitely I, I don't deny my demons, so I know that I have a, tons of dark side in me, and I've definitely done my share of sinning, for sure. But it never ceases to amaze me the, number, the amount of feedback I get from people where their 
immediate impression of me is one thing, but once they start talking to me, they have an entirely different impression of me. So that at first, people tend to be intimidated by me, and I forget that, oh, I'm 6'3", and I'm kind of big, and, you know, and I'm not wearing my glasses. I might look, like, frightening, or something about my face might look frightening. But, but inside is something benevolent, you know, and, and actually doesn't like to hurt anybody. And, and that's part of my philosophy is that, you know, if you've got to hurt somebody, they have to have done something wrong to you or to you know, somebody else. But, uh, so How does boxing come into that? <laughs> well, I think you know, it comes from you know, being beat up on as a child by somebody who is so much, so much bigger than you and feeling like you need to defend yourself against some folks. And look, when I'm in the ring, I'm not... I'm not, I don't have the killer instinct. I'm not a animal. I don't like harming people. I usually fight very defensively and only to the extent that somebody's hurt, trying to hurt me. If I get that sense that they're not working with me and learning with me, that they're actually, it's about who's the bigger man in there. Then it, then it becomes me protecting myself, but I'm not a fighter. I, I remember one time I was training at a, a famous kickboxing gym called the jet center. And I trained with, A, a great, great Israeli um, martial artist. His name was Shuki Ron. And uh, he learned Muay Thai in the Netherlands, which is one of the greatest places to learn Muay Thai next to Thailand. And I did this very seriously. I didn't, I didn't fight, but I did the workouts and worked with him. And he trained a couple of world champions. And one day he looked at me when I walked into the gym and the light heavyweight champion of the world was shadow boxing in the, in the mirror. And he said, Mark, he said, you can beat him. But I couldn't. And, and here's why. Not just because I said I couldn't. But yeah, I probably had the technique and the strength and the youth and stuff to beat, to beat him on paper. But there's something in that guy that I don't have. And that something in that guy, to me, is like there is a meanness that he's in touch with that I'm not. There's just a desire to damage another human being that I don't have. That whenever I've gone in, into a fight in real life, I've been terrified, terrified for myself, terrified of hurting the other person. And fighters that I know don't have that sensation. Or if they do, it's twisted in a way that it's, it's a proactive, like, lusty desire to kind of put the other, you know, to, to dominate the other person. I don't, I don't have that. And so that's why I never took it beyond, you know, sparring in, in the ring, you know, just to learn how to do it. Okay. Do you still do that or is it just boxing now? I don't box. I mean, I, I do the boxing workout, but yeah. I don't box anymore. Okay. I have um, equilibrium issues and stuff now, so I, I can't really get in the, hit in the head anymore. All oh, right. <laughs> okay. I have, still haven't asked you a single question that I wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, We're going into deep water here. It's been, it's been great. I, I like conversations like this. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Just one more question about politics, uh, sort of, because I was wondering if you would uh, be the president, would America be involved in wars? Well, we wouldn't be involved in the wars that we're currently in, if that's what you mean. I don't think that America has had a concerted or unified, principled foreign policy in decades and decades and decades. And when they did, it was a kind of Wilsonian progressive policy of democratization and, and spreading democracy through the world, through violence. And uh, I disagree with that fundamentally. But that's been, that, that premise has more or less dictated our involvement in every war since then. For me, as the president, I would have a 
self-interested foreign policy. And for for those of you out there listening who think that we operate according to that premise now, you are, I hate to tell you, dead wrong. We don't. We have a self-sacrificial policy where we think we're, we're entitled to go into a, a country, democratize it. In other words, push in institutions of democracy, which then enable the people to vote in governments that are hostile to us. And, and not only hostile to us, but support groups that are murderous in their intentions. And so as from my point of view, being the guy that believes that force is only appropriate when it's retaliatory force, I would only fight with those who attacked us. But I would fight without apology until the threat is done. There wouldn't be any sense of let's contain it, let's limit it and contain it. If you have a cancer, the idea is to cut it out, not to keep it in your body, Mm. but to eliminate it entirely. Because if it's still there, it's going to metastasize. And I think in World War II, which frankly is our involvement, is questionable. There were probably other alternatives in hindsight that we could have used that would have probably more effectively ended the concept of authoritarianism, but we didn't because our government was slightly authoritarian as well. But at least in World War II, they understood that we were fighting ideas first. We were fighting, we were fighting principles first. We were fighting Nazism. We weren't fighting the panzer units. Those were just techniques, just like terrorism is a technique used by somebody animated by a philosophy. And in the uh, Pacific theater, we were fighting uh, Japanese imperialism that was motivated by a Bushido philosophy. And we, we understood that we had to completely, we had to take that philosophy and show the people that believed it, that it was wrong, that it was not only wrong, it was evil and had no place in a, in a civilized world between human beings. It had to be humiliated and, and, and destroyed utterly, discredited in, in the eyes of its own people. And unfortunately, that, that took a lot to do, a lot that people look back on, and, and myself included, and say, well, that's horrible. That's horrible what happened. Yes, it is horrible. But it was, it was a choice. It was a no-win situation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. ...that the non-aggressive powers were forced into. They had to defend themselves. And had we defended ourselves in the way that we do it today, Nazism would still be alive. It would still be, it would still be fomenting. It would still be agitating. It would still be causing wars somewhere in the world. And so would the Shinto religion. And so would Bushido and those principles that animated the um, generals and admirals in the Japanese army. Those, those would still be powerful forces that we'd have to contend with for decades and decades and decades and decades. Instead... We outright eliminated them. We said these, these ideas have no place in human society. No place. And I think they were right. To use the atomic bomb? 
When we were put in, in this position, and this is a very controversial position that I've tweeted from time to time, I've argued with many people over it. We were given a choice. The choice was to kill 100,000 people or 1.5 million people. By all estimates at the time, our going into Japan would have meant a million or more allied American and or allied forces probably would have died along with, with, uh, with the Japanese forces. Now, people say their military was paralyzed at the time. They were, they were completely, um, they, were, they were not a viable military force. But by all accounts that I've ever known, the people were willing to fight because their emperor had not given up. And that meant house-to-house warfare, island-to-island warfare. So the decision was a terrible one. And it's a terrible one that we were forced into. And regrettable in the sense that we were even put in the position to have to do that in the first place. But from my point of view, if somebody is the aggressor, they can't make the terms. You make the terms defending yourself. You make the terms and you go until the person stops. You go until the threat is over. Now that seems sensible to me, but it doesn't seem sensible to most people nowadays, and I don't understand why. Maybe you can tell me why that doesn't seem sensible. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I agree. On the other hand, my knowledge about World War II, since A, I'm a little bit young, B, I'm ignorant, C, or all of the above. But anyway, I'm not sure. But then it's fairly safe to say that you're not a pacifist then. I'm not a pacifist. I think pacifism is even evil. If you don't believe that retaliatory force is moral. It, see, see the, the pacifist, in my view, and maybe you have listeners that could, could argue with me and, and passionately and well, pacifism to me holds all forces morally the same, as all force is aggressive, is aggression. And I disagree fundamentally. There is a difference between the guy who breaks into my house to rape my wife or take, my, take what I have and me defending myself against him. There's a difference between those two kinds of force, yet they are both force. And so there is a difference in my mind between what the allied powers did to defend itself against two authoritarian cultures and what those authoritarian cultures did. And that, to me, is the difference. It's everything. It's everything. It makes, it makes the allied side moral in their use of force. And, and it makes the casualties that happened as a result of that overwhelming force the responsibility of the government that aggressed. It's not my fault when somebody breaks in here and I shoot him. It's his fault. That never would have happened had he not done what he did. And none of that would have happened. None of those actions would have happened from the firebombing of Dresden, all these horrible things at, at, and Tokyo and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. None of that would have happened had they not aggressed. None of that would have happened had they not marched through China, murdering people, murdering people in Indonesia, murdering them for resources. I mean, the savagery of both sides of the Axis powers is, is almost unimaginable. And I think in comparison, even though there's nothing really good about war, war is a state, it's a state that has to be stopped. It's a state under which no human being can survive. It's, it's terrible. There's no denying it. But please make a distinction between retaliatory force and aggression. Those are not the same things. There's a moral difference between the two, and the moral difference is everything. There are people in Sweden who think that we should, um, and I might agree, that we, since we are such a small nation, and nowadays we talk again, as I, we did when I was a child, about the Russians being a threat to Sweden. Mm-hmm. I would say that if we would sort of, what do you call it, like strong and the, the ar- army and so Military, forth. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that's basically to burn money. 
because if the Russians decide to invade Sweden, we're not going to stand a chance anyway. So, so we might as well just stop like making an excuse for them to fight us because if they want to take us, well, come take us then. That I, I would like to sort of for us to just lay down on the ground when the when the armored cars come rolling in. Well, then you may not be thinking that 10 years down the line if Sweden is a, is a satellite of Russia and you're subjected to the same kinds of things that their government subjects their own people to. I mean, for me, life isn't worth living unless you're free. And I know that there's really no free countries around. I know not, not in the way that I think there should be. We're all subjected to force from our governments who are supposedly doing things for our own good. You know, that's a whole other can of worms to open. But but we're we're basically free. We have basic freedoms, you know. And there are some pillars of Western civilization that are, are alive in, in even, you know, countries that are predominantly socialistic. And to have those stolen from you, to have your intellectual freedom taken away, to have your property taken away from, from you, is, is taking your life. Because your life is your property. I don't just mean the material things around you. But it's the things you earn, your body, your mind, all of this is your property that is yours. It's, not, it's nobody else's unless you willingly decide to give it, give those things to somebody else. Otherwise, to the extent that you're, somebody is entitled to it or can have control of it, you're a slave. And I would rather die in the streets of Stockholm with a gun in my hand, shooting at the man that wants to take that from me and, mm. and from my friends and, and from the people that I love than to lay down and let them bulldoze over me and control our society in the way that they feel they control theirs. I totally agree that freedom is uh, essential and super important. However, I think that if we would try to use force against the Russians, would they invade us? We're just harming ourselves. Yeah, in the short term, but for a long-term gain, you make them pay for every foot of ground that they take as opposed to letting them just come in and take over. You're fighting for something that is the most noble cause in humanity, and that's for liberty. When this person comes running in through the door here to rape the two of us, if that person makes me shoot him, if I shoot that person, he fucks up my life anyway because uh, it would be a really hard thing to live with you're right but, I, but that, not as much as he would have had he victimized you i'm not sure perhaps it's better to be raped if i would be raped than to live with the conscience of, of killing someone well i mean i understand to me i of course taking a life would be extremely difficult but what would help me put it into a moral terms is what they did it's what they did that prompted the action that, that you took. And so as difficult as it is, it's probably far better than living with the scars of what they would leave you with if they chose to let you live after that at all. Your life is in their hands and they can do what they want with you. That's, that's no place for a human being to be. So, you know, this person were perverse enough to come in here and try to rape the two of us. <laughs> First of all, he'd probably be surprised. <laughs> To see the two of us here, I'll help you out. I'll make sure that I don't so, let so, them do that. So you'll kill him? Well, look, I'll tell you a story real fast. I was in my um, apartment with my girlfriend at the time and my roommate. This is in early 90s. And I heard screaming coming from downstairs. And it sounded like a woman was being murdered. And that's what I thought was happening. 
So I grabbed my 45 and I went downstairs, my gun. I went downstairs and through one hallway came a man and he was being followed by our property manager. And uh, he had a screwdriver in his hand. He had been trying to steal, trying to break into somebody's house. So I put my gun on him and I said, stop. And I had just been training with a with a uh, a teacher who trained special forces and um, SWAT guys, and I trained myself very thoroughly with a gun. So it wasn't like I didn't know what I was doing, like so many people who pull a gun out. And he took another step, and my girlfriend was watching from the balcony and said, "Don't, don't do it, because he'll shoot you." Because that's what I learned. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pull it out unless I'm gonna use it. And I made him sit on his hands, and I waited till the police came. And I did know that my life changed in that moment. Because I felt if I had to, I would. And even though I didn't have to do anything, he had a weapon in his hand. And I was within my rights because he was about where that wall is there. So I'm actually within my legal rights to use lethal force based on where he was, based on what he was doing. But I didn't have to, thank God. And this is the majority of cases that happen in the United States where, where they claim that 200, you know, a million people use guns you know, to protect innocent lives and property. So many of them don't get into the newspapers in part because it's this. It's this moment where you make somebody sit down, you, may, you, you call the cops, they're not moving, they're not harming anybody anymore because you've stopped it just by your show of force. Mm. So, yes, it would be terrible and life-changing, just like what we were talking about with war. Terrible, life-changing. But I'm forced into that position by what the other person is doing. I'm forced into that. I would never have had to make that choice had they not done what they did. If they just live and let live. Mm. And so that makes my action moral because my only intent is to make them stop, stop their aggression. And I, I had to do, I could do it without firing a shot with that guy. And if that ever happens in the future, I hope I could do it without harming anybody in the future. But if I have to, well, I stopped a rape one time. I, I literally stopped somebody from raping somebody and I had to knock the guy unconscious. I had to punch him in the face and knock him out. Oh, wow. And, um, People in, in, from, from their balconies were watching and not doing anything, not calling the police, not doing anything. It was like a, it was like a circus sideshow. And uh, it's not my fault that I hit him. I was trying to get, I said, get off of her. And I was called, I called, had the police called and he came at me. He, he attacked me. I was just trying to defuse the situation. So what happened to him is his fault. It's not mine. What happens to that guy who breaks in is his fault. It's not mine. He's at war with me by breaking into my place and saying that what is yours is mine by right, and I'm going to take it aggressively from you. By depriving me of my own reason, my own values, he has now stepped outside of what I think the purpose of society is, which is, to, is, is not only just the passage of knowledge and division of labor and, and the expansion of knowledge, but protection. Are you pro the Second Amendment? Some people think that you should sort of Okay, all right, that's a t-shirt saying, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to, to keep, keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, are you NRA? I'm not. Almost. Borderline NRA. No, I think, I mean, I, I see what they're doing, but I think their justifications are so stupid that I can't really get behind them. And maybe a guy like Wayne LaPierre, or any the, the president, whoever the per current president of the NRA is, would, um, would be able to dispute me. But to say that an AK-47 or an AR-15 are hunting weapons is kind of a stupid justification. But I was here during the LA riots, and one of the images that is burned in my brain 
are from the Korean shops that were not burned down. And the reason they weren't looted or burned down was because the Korean store owners stood in front of their shops with AK-47s. For me, a weapon like that is for when the cops won't be there. It's for when the civil structure does break down and you're dealing with gangs of human beings that are criminals and want to harm you. And a revolver ain't going to help you, but a weapon like that will. And when I think of, you know, Switzerland, where every, I think, draft age person has a firearm, automatic weapon, uh, whatever the caliber of the weapon is, they all they all have one. Okay. And there's no gun violence. I think of my right to defend myself in the most efficient way possible and and my love of people and their right to defend themselves, women in particular who are victims, overwhelmingly the majority of victims in violent crime, oftentimes the equalizer between her and that big dude that's trying to harm her is a firearm mm. or that alienated uh, husband who you know has a restraining order against him but breaks into her house anyway. That's distasteful to a lot of people, I imagine, and seems contradictory that I hold such principles of, of love of humanity and, and liberty and say that part of the protection of that is your ability to defend yourself as efficiently as possible. And that's what I think the Second Amendment does. It's just claiming a right to self-defense and a right to self-defense against usually the biggest violator of human rights, which is government. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, I disagree, of course. I'm Swedish. I, I think that uh, would there be no firearms, <coughs> there would be less violence, I guess, if you could erase all firearms from the face of Earth. So I guess the Macedonian conquering of, of Egypt and parts of Asia Minor didn't have violence, they didn't have firearms. They just crucified people along the sides of the road. and No, you're right, of course. I mean, course. history is splattered with not just individual violence, but gangs and hordes of people murdering and raping and enslaving entire civilizations mm. before guns were even invented. Of course, yeah. But uh, I'm talking about now. I would assume that if there would be no firearms in America, there would be less murders. And if there were no disease in the world, there would be no death. But I, I am dealing with the world as it is. And the world as it is, there, there are firearms. And either a law-abiding citizen who respects people and community is going to own one, or a person who is at war with the community and thinks that what they have is his by right is going to own one. And when we make these onerous gun laws, what we do is we take guns from the people who are law-abiding and productive citizens, and we enable, we disarm them in essence against these other people who have no sense of community or no sense of conscience and don't care who they harm. I'd, I'd rather be armed if somebody came into a theater. I, I, if somebody, if some of these mass shootings, you know, that have happened over the last uh, five years, they've happened in gun-free zones. Um, um, how far do you think a person like that would get if people in the audience were armed? Not very far, one, one can imagine. Yeah, perhaps. There was a case of that woman in Texas where the guy, I think, bashed his car through a Denny's uh, window and then got out and started shooting people in the restaurant. And he was, you know, right in the beginning of the spree where she was sitting, she had a clear shot at him, but left her gun in the car mm -hmm. and could have, you know, could have turned 
this mass murder spree, you know, of 10 or 15 casualties into could have saved 13 lives. In Sweden, we don't have any school shootings like the ones that have been here. Why do you think that that almost only happens in America? What was that one that just happened recently with the, the guy that went to that camp? You know which one I'm talking about? I thought I thought he was Swedish. So. That was in Norway, yeah. In Norway. That was absolutely horrible, yeah. Absolutely horrible, yeah, of course. Well, I think it was actually like 70 or something. Yeah. I think that it's it's more appropriate to say, if does gun ownership cause crime? And does it lead to these kinds of things? And I think that the overwhelming evidence shows it doesn't. I, I think the overwhelming evidence shows that when they enact concealed carry laws, crime goes down precipitously. And where I see tons of gun crime happening in my country, I see basically cities that are gun-free cities. Chicago has extremely strict gun ownership laws, probably the highest murder rate in the country at the moment, and most by gun violence. Mm -hmm. And all of those guns are procured by illegal means. It's the people like you and me walking down the street who are the victims of that stuff or could become the victims of that, who are prevented from defending ourselves. So the, the principle to me is that if I see statistically that gun ownership in law-abiding people's hands actually lowers crime, then, then I don't hold gun ownership in and of itself as intrinsically bad. I hold the values of the people holding the firearm as either good or bad, not, mm. not gun ownership itself. And, if I, and I also see it as the most efficient means of protecting yourself. And as far as I'm concerned your right to self-protection is sacrosanct. I, nobody could violate that. Your life matters. It's the most important thing to you. Mm. And you should be allowed by our government, whose ostensible purpose is to protect you, to defend yourself because they won't. the police won't be there when this stuff goes down. They won't. And there's times when, a number of times, even in just L.A. history, where civil disobedience has gone into the realm of violence, we see it in Ferguson, too. And nobody will protect you. Nobody will protect you except you. Well, we, we can't dwell more on, on politics. Perhaps, <laughs> we'll, perhaps we'll get back to it. But can I ask you, uh, you, you said that you've, done, you've sure done a lot of sinning. Yes. How? I mean, first of all, you're not religious. So do you, how can you even sin? Well, I mean, sin in the sense... Well, sin, I think in its purest sense, means missing the mark, right? It's, it's not... So for me, my philosophical orientation is that when I step outside the rational, I can act against my life. If I act against my life, whether it's uh, drinking too much or, you know, on a habitual basis as opposed to just, you know, once a year, or if, if I were to do something to sabotage my career or friendship, these, are, these to me are sins because you're, you're acting against your interests, you're acting against your rational values, and one would call that irrational, and for me that is a no-no in my philosophical world. Mm. This is political, but since you think that, for instance, that I assume that you think that all drugs should be legal. Yes. Do you also think that prostitution should be legal? Yes. It is, perhaps. I'm not sure. It's not, but no. it should be. It's legal in some counties, I think, around the United States, like in parts of Nevada, it's legal. San Remo, right? I don't know. I'm not sure either, but I've heard that people go from Vegas to San Remo. Oh, that's it, San Remo. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. where it is, yeah. Okay, never mind. So when when did you find acting? When you, did you start acting? <laughs> I started when I was in my mid-20s. I stumbled into it by accident. 
I went to college uh, for a year. I was a little disillusioned with it, and I dropped out after a year. I got straight A's, but I dropped out. And just kind of... Um, What were your major? At first, biology, and then I changed it to psychology and history. And then I started working at a gas station and seeing a crazy girl. A girl, my girlfriend at the time was kind of crazy. And just got lost in just, you know, being 19 and not knowing what I wanted to do. And at some point thought, well, I've got to do something more than this. And uh, I signed up for a, a modeling class at a place called John Robert Powers. I didn't have to pay anything for it. So, but I thought, well, maybe I'll model or something. Um, Because you were a tall, handsome guy. I was tall. I don't know about handsome, but uh, I thought maybe I could do it. And I did a couple of gigs. I did a little runway and I did a catalog. Were you athletic growing up? Yeah, I was. I yeah. was. But I went, through a, I went through a kind of growth spurt late in life. So uh, there was a period of time from like 15 to 18 where I wasn't as athletic. I used to do sports all the time. But And so at this John Robert Powers place, I went into a um, commercial workshop. And uh, the actor there who was teaching it thought I had talent, set me up with an agent. And that agent set me up with an acting school that turned out to be one of the best acting schools on the West Coast. And that just kind of started me off. What was your first paid job as an actor? My first paid job was a, a movie called Fatal Beauty. And I hadn't even started taking acting class yet, so I had no idea how to approach what I was doing. But there were some big people in the movie. Whoopi Goldberg was in the movie, and that's when she was, you know, really on, on top of her game as far as acting goes. Um, Sam Elliott was in it. Brad Dourif was in it. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I stumbled through that movie. It's probably the worst death scene. I gave the worst death scene probably in all of cinema because yeah. I had no idea how to die. <laughs> But it was. Uh, Do you think that's on YouTube? That would be cool to show could, the viewers. You could you could probably get that. Yeah, listeners. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize to your listeners in advance for that. If 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 most of them haven't turned off because of our political conversation. Well, I'm not sure. It has to pass my really aggressive editor, Louisa, oh. back in Sweden. <laughs> so we'll see how much. But those are the kinds of conversations that I love the most. Well, I'm, I'm like that guy that loves coming into a party and talking about politics and religion. But because I don't feel like I do it with um, anger, I'm not trying to push my thing on you. You're not trying to push your thing on me. And it's kind of cool. Like We can exchange and disagree and be like, hey, it's okay. How many guns do you own? <laughs> How many guns do I own? Uh, see, the fact that I have to think about it, you're like, okay. I think I own maybe seven. All handguns? No, I have uh, four handguns, two shotguns. What do you use them for? Protection? Various, yeah, you know, we'll target practice now just to keep myself, uh, and I can't use it for protection unless I have a, concealed carry permit i also okay. have to get a permit for those which i do have i don't have I have the permit i have the form for the permit so for now they're in a safe and they stay there till i go to the gun range and then i use them on the gun range do you ever hunt and stuff no no i hate uh, that i hate that okay you've been a working actor for how long like 20, 20 years. years yeah 20 yeah. years yeah I've sort of fallen in love with this question. I tend to ask it to most of my guests these days. But do you feel that you've reached your full potential? No. No, God, no. What's in the way? Well, me. Usually that's me. And now that the system is kind of opening up, you know, now that 
studios don't necessarily have all of the control over what gets made and what doesn't get made. Now that Netflix and Amazon and iTunes are actually backing films that have been made, giving them a wider distribution, it's easier now to, to participate in projects that um, can, you know, promote your talents a, a lot more than, than what, what you do out there in the, in the world as it is now. But, um, yeah, I've, I've always, I've never put it on anybody else's head that I'm where I'm at because of other people. I'm where I'm at because of a combination of elements, you know. I'm, some of it is, you know, it takes a while for people to see who you are, and some of it is that it takes you a while to let yourself be what you are. And I, I feel like I'm still growing into myself. Do you have a mental bucket list? I'd love to do the play Enemy of the People. Ibsen is one of my favorite uh, playwrights, and... I love I love that character. Dr. Eastman is, a, is an amazing character. Right up my alley, right up my value system, you know, and uh, I'd love to do that at some point. And, you know, I just want to do good films that say what what I want to say because I think our culture is saturated with redos of old, old values that are not helping us. I want to participate in in a revolution of culture. I think that's the artists. I think that I'm an aspiring artist. I don't consider myself an artist, but as an aspiring artist, I I think I can be the barometer of truth and register my protest at things that I feel are hurting us. I think that's what a good artist or aspiring artist does, right? Yeah. What do you have planned ahead? I mean, I know that it was just pilot season. Did you book any jobs? I'm working actually on a show called The Returned. I know that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've been on hiatus from that, and uh, we'll find out hopefully in the next month or so if we get picked up for a second season. So I didn't do pilot season this year, okay, since my show is out. But I have been working on my own stuff. My wife just finished a series of international shorts that we did that are thematically connected, and it's going to become a feature film about miscommunication between cultures and the sexes and. And they're they're comedies, and we just finished shooting that uh, two weeks ago, and we've done that in eight countries and twelve cities, and uh, it's nice to see the photographic part of that finished. And now she's doing another project that I'm helping to produce called The Last Train, which uh, is based on a play by a very very good actor named Anthony Montez, and. Um, We'll have the effect of suicide prevention. I think it's about that topic, and it's it's a really poignant story about two people. So, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that's going to look on when it's all cut together. And other than that, I'm writing stuff too that I hope to put out there one day. Do you call yourself a feminist? Feminist in the sense that I believe in the equality of the sexes, the legal equality of the sexes. Yeah. I think actually, when I look at my script for this, I think we've actually touched everything. Did we? Yeah, I think so. So, if there's not anything you would like to add about the stuff we've said already, no, I'm, I liked this. I thought it was really um, interesting. I, I haven't had to talk about stuff like that in a public forum really ever. So it's nice that there's a, a space out there to be able to discuss really volatile topics like politics and really sensitive topics like where you've come from and what's what's going on inside of you in a free open way i, I really like that i appreciate it the, oh, the time for it thank you for me not being an american it's so interesting to hear your thoughts about 
war guns <coughs> and so forth it's super interesting i mean i'm trying to sort of grasp the uh, american society and it's been like i've met a lot of people in showbiz and they're sort of they have a democratic sort of scope on everything it seems like you come from a different angle and stuff i think i do i don't think there's anything in the mainstream political world in in america that that i identify with and maybe maybe that's why it's interesting because i'm not a party person i'm not i'm not one that identifies with the left party or the right party in fact i think there's very few things on the right that i like and some things more on the left in certain areas that i like i just don't agree with their execution and both sides to me don't respect individual rights both sides want to control what they think is important and so for me they they've i've i'm outside of that loop and i'm glad i'm able to give you like a different perspective because i don't know that you will ever hear this perspective especially from an actor maybe you will maybe there's some libertarian actors out there I draw the conclusion that you aren't really happy with President Obama. I haven't been happy with the president since probably Lincoln. Okay. <laughs> All right. Would you like to recommend something? Anything? Hey, well, I mean, I think um one of my one of my favorite philosophers and this will totally alienate people, so it'll probably get it'll probably get edited out. <laughs> no doubt, but one of my favorite philosophers is Ayn Rand, and I think one of the one of the greatest things she ever did was was provide a clear system of ethics based on rational egoism and it's so benign and of course it gets maligned by everybody who, most of whom don't read it but if i could recommend a book it would be or an essay it would be on objectivist ethics and read it for yourself before you jump to conclusions about what rational egoism means because it's it's in a book it's the first essay of a book called the virtue of selfishness and that title alone will alienate so many people because they presume that it means selfishness means you get what you want at the expense of others and she was the first person to define selfishness as not that at all and that pursuing your own rational values in no way conflicts with other people pursuing theirs and that you don't get what you want at somebody else's expense and so to frame the the moral argument in totally revolutionary terms i think is essential for us as people and to me that's my new testament that's my that's my standard of good and if i can in some way contribute to getting it out there more to people especially people who criticize her for whatever reasons they criticize her for to read the ideas firsthand instead of secondhand or thirdhand and to decide for themselves whether or not it truly is an expression of a benign good moral value system who do you think I should interview in my podcast i think you should interview alex epstein okay alex epstein wrote a great book called and i get this the moral case for fossil fuels. You want to talk about something totally countercultural and he's not in the pocket of the oil oil guys. The oil guys are running from him like crazy. But he communicates the most articulate message that I've ever heard about why it is good to use coal and oil. Uh-huh. Why it is good. And I guarantee that's not in our mainstream. That's not that's not what we hear. We've been hearing for decades that it's horrific but he'll he'll show you a different a different tune and he may even convince you by the time 
the interview is over. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. It's been great. Mr. Mark Pellegrino, ladies and gents. And if you do want to follow him on Twitter, he's Mark R. Pellegrino there. And I, for instance, am VarvetPod. And speaking of which, you can check out our homepage at varvetpod.net. And if you want to discuss the content, why don't you do so on Instagram, for instance? And we're VarvetPod there as well. Varvet is made by me, Christoph Schumpf, and editor Lovisa Olsson, and producer Christina Jörling Biro. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye bye. And thank you, Acast, for distribution. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.